Right, we begin to the Word of God, First uh, John chapter five. First John chapter five. If you'll turn there, the verses that uh, I'm speaking from this morning, I've entitled "The Certainties of the Christian Life." First John chapter five, beginning at verse thirteen. Once you find that place, uh, at least the majority of you, I will begin reading um, the text so it can be. Uh, in our minds by way of reminder. John writes, beginning at verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, And there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come. And has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The certainties of the Christian life. Founding father Benjamin Franklin said, quote, Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. End of quote. Well, uh, Mr. Franklin, if he could fast forward history to our day, he would know that there are people who don't pay taxes. That is not a certainty for them. When Franklin said those two things are certain, death certainly is. But as believers, otherwise, we do beg to differ. We know that there are other things that are certain. In fact, I just read some of them for you. Scripture, in fact, is a repository of certainties. Things that are absolutely certain. And we know this based on the authority of the word of God. God has declared it. Therefore, it is certain. Whatever God has said will happen. Whatever God has promised is a certainty. It's not a question in our minds, there shouldn't be a question of mind, never a question mark behind anything that God declares. What are some of the certainties that Scripture uh, enunciates in various places in that sacred book? I can give you some. The consequences of sin, they are certain. In the book of Numbers, it states, be sure your sins will find you out. In the book of Romans, It says this, the wages of sin is death. That is a certainty. On the flip side, on the 
positive side, a positive note. The scripture teaches us from beginning to end that righteousness is blessed by God. That's a certainty. We know that the God of the Bible is the true and only God. That is for sure. Jesus Christ, clearly, unequivocally, he is the only way to God. There is a heaven and a hell. Write that down. That is certain. There is a heaven and a hell and there is no in-between place called purgatory. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. That is a certainty. All of these things, as I've said, are certainties because the word of God pronounces them to be so. Now, the passage before us enunciates further certainties. As John winds up this book, 1 John, he recycles back through things he's already addressed. And then he, by doing that, he lets us know there are some certainties that we can continue to hold on to. The first uncertainty certainty is this, the certainty of eternal life. That is found in verse 13. John says these things, those two words, refer back to the things written in this letter, encompasses all that's stated up to this very point. These things, they are written to those, notice, who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, he is writing to Christians. He is writing to those who know the Lord. All that he has written, what was written previously up to this point was given to the saints. It is for us. Now the things that he wrote uh, earlier on uh, in the previous portion of this letter includes test. Test. Test that can help a person determine whether they have eternal life or not. May I say this? Anybody can claim to be saved. Anybody can claim to have eternal life. The claim doesn't make it so. The Bible provides tests, doctrinal tests and practical tests for a person to determine do they really possess eternal life. And the fact of the matter is in 1 John there are tests enunciated, doctrinal tests. What about sin? How do you address sin? What about Christ? A Christological test. Do you believe the right things about him? What about a moral test? Obedience. Do you obey his word? Another test. What The love test. A moral test. Do you love fellow Christians? Those tests help us to determine if they are found in our life. If we meet that litmus test, those litmus tests, then we can be assured that indeed we are the possessors of eternal life. Now that was needed. Those tests were needed because of the infiltration of the Antichrist into that local, those local assemblies. The false teaching about these people, these people enunciated that they had higher knowledge. Um, they had secret information. Uh, these incipient Gnostics, they had this superior knowledge. Um, these Antichrists who opposed Christ, they had come into the churches there in Asia Minor, and the faith of some of the saints there had begun to be shaken. So John had to assure them, no, 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 no. Don't listen to them. Those that went out from among us who were not a part of us, if they've been a part of us, they remain with us. First John two nineteen. Those who have departed, maybe even some who remain, they're not a part of us. They're not in the body of Christ. Don't listen to them. So John says, I've written these things 
to you who believe, who believe, present tense, in the name of the Son of God. Notice verse 13. So that you may know that you have eternal life. I like the word know there. That word know uh, in the Greek denotes knowledge that is characterized by assurance. Something known, here it is, with certainty. What he is saying, you can know, you can have certainty that you have eternal life by the things that I've written. If you look at those tests and you pass the test, you believed in Christ, you know that you have eternal life. Boy, that's wonderful. One does not have to fear or live in doubt regarding the final disposition of their soul. I'm not waiting to get to the great judgment day to determine if I get in or if not. That's not the way it is for believers. We have a certainty. We do have eternal life. Possessors of eternal life. Let me tell you something. There is no greater possession you have than eternal life, right? Nothing superior to that. I don't care what you possess. You can have oodles of money or maybe not very much money. It doesn't matter. You have, nothing is greater that you possess than the gift of eternal life that's been given to you by Jesus Christ. Why is that? Those other possessions can be lost, right? Uh, anything can come along. You can lose them. But the possession of eternal life is yours permanently. It cannot be lost. It cannot be forfeited. In writing about the security of believers, salvation, Paul, uh, in a familiar passage of scripture that's loved by believers, he uses the phrase, the love of Christ, in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? What he is meaning, who can separate us from our union with him? Who can take our salvation from us? Then the Apostle Paul, in Romans 8, in that passage, as you know, he provides a litany of, shall I say, impotent candidates. Those feckless ones who would present, present themselves as those who could separate us from the love of Christ. And he does that to show that no matter whether they are demons, whether it's death, whether it's life, whether it's pestilence, whether it's persecution, whatever it happens to be as he numbers them there. They cannot separate the believer from eternal life. Our soul is never in jeopardy. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. Condemnation, judgment. There is no judgment awaiting at the end of our days, the end of time, for those who are in or united to Jesus Christ. That has been eliminated. Eternal life, what is it? Well, let me tell you, first of, thing, first of all, is more than a quantity of life. It's more than just endless existence. Well, we're going to do that. We're going to live on and on and on and on. Can you imagine that? Living on and on and on and on. But I want you to know something as well. Um, it's more than just that because unbelievers, they have endless life too. Eternal life is a quality of life. Christians share in Jesus' life, who himself is eternal life. That's what he is called in verse 20 of 1 John 5, which says, In his Son, this is the true God and eternal life. We share his life. 
his eternal life. So that's eternal life. We know God, the true God, and we know Jesus Christ whom he sent. John chapter 17, verse 3. Eternal life is a relationship with God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's eternal life. It has, we have his life, God's life in the soul. Now the full manifestation of eternal life will be realized in heaven. It is there that we will live with Christ. We will live with God our Father. We will be in the Father's house. We will have intimate communion with him. We will worship him. We will serve him. We will do that in perfect bliss and perfect joy. There will be no sin to disrupt the fellowship. There will be no sin to bring sorrow and doubt. There will be no sin, no more sorrow, no heartache, no tears, no more pain, no more death. That is when eternal life will be realized for us in its completion. And that's what we possess as believers, eternal life. The certainty of eternal life. You have it if you... Pass the test, you know, truly Jesus Christ is yours. There's another certainty in Christian life, and it is found in the succeeding verses, 14 through 17, the certainty of answered prayer. Well, why is that important? I'm going to tell you why, because while we wait to be in the direct and immediate presence of God in heaven, we must live down here, right? We must live down here in this world of trouble and sorrow and the difficulty. We must deal with all the stuff that comes to our life. Yes, we're going to be in heaven one day in the sweet by and by, but right now we have to live the nasty now and now. But because we have eternal life, because we're the children of God, we have this knowledge, we can then notice the text, this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Confidence. Confidence renders a word in the original that means freedom of speech. Americans love to talk about their right to freedom of speech. But I'm going to tell you something. Believers had freedom of speech long before there was an American Declaration of Independence or Constitution. Freedom of speech. Boldness. To express our thoughts before God without fear. We can come to him with Freedom of speech. We can say what's on our mind. The writer of Hebrews uses the word, the same word, translated confidence. In this passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says this. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You'll have time of need. You just come to the Lord with confidence and boldness. To his throne is not a throne of judgment for saints. It's a throne of grace. We can come to him and the promise is we'll find grace to help in time of need. We'll get from him what we need. We can draw near. We're not to shy away from God. We're not to shy away from the throne of grace. But in times of need, we're to boldly come asking him for his help. When you're tempted, ask him for his help. When you're going through some troubles and things are dark and it seems like, how am I going to get through this? What you need to do is go to the throne of grace. That's where grace is dispensed to you to meet your need. Go boldly. Don't shy away from going. 
our confidence or boldness is knowing that whatever we ask, that's what the text is saying, according to his will, he hears us. And I'm going to tell you something about God's will. It's good. His, his will is nothing to fear. You agree with me on that? His will is best. You want God's will. Always. I mean, think about it. You don't want your will. Because you don't know enough. I'm not insulting you. I'm talking about myself as well. Because we're finite creatures, right? We don't know all the potential potentialities out there. But God, who is infinite in wisdom and knowledge, you want his will. And we know also that because God loves us, he wants the very best for us. And so his will for us is the best. That's why you want his will. John chapter 16, verse 23 Jesus says this, in that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, in my name meaning anything that I want, anything that agrees with my purpose, anything that I stand for, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Get that? Joy? He'll give you what the Father wants, what Jesus wants. It's not going to make you sad. It'll give you joy. Have you noticed that? People think that the will of God, oh, I don't know if I want the will of God because it ain't going to make me happy because it ain't what I want. The will of God will give you joy. Give you joy. What you want. You want his, his will. The Bible provides other Conditions for answered prayer. We need to know them. The will of God is what our text tells us first and foremost. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 22, verse 22, it says this. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. You see there? Obedience is keeping his commandments shows that our hearts are in alignment with his will. When you obey him, you're saying, God, my, I'm, I'm in alignment with your will, which is expressed in your word, which you've declared you want me to do and how you want me to live, how you want me to think. All of that, I am doing that. And God says, I see, and I'm going to answer your prayers. Psalm 37, 4 is another It says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's good that the Bible lets us know, delight yourself in the Lord. That's first. People like to skip to the second part. Give me the desires of my heart. God says, no, 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 no. Delight yourself in me. What does delight mean? It means find satisfaction in him. He is your soul's satisfaction. Delight yourself in him. No Christian has to say, I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) As far as I know, Mick's not a saint. See, we can get some satisfaction because our satisfaction comes from him. We delight ourselves in him, who he is, what he's revealed himself to be to us, all that he is doing and has planned for us. We delight ourselves in him. Another thing, delighting 
And God gives one righteous desires. And thus God gives the desires of the heart. Desires are righteous. That's what it is. Now, another thing. You, you can't hold on to sin. You can't do that. Um, you can't put sin in your... You treat it like you have a piece of candy in your mouth. Just keep it there and rolling it over and rolling it over. You can't do that. Psalm 66, 18 says this. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sin in the heart, unconfessed sin, that's to regard wickedness in the heart. When there is the failure to say, Lord, this is sin. I've done this and you're confessing it. Uh, what that does, it short circuits prayer. It ends it. Another condition, prayer is forgiving. Forgive other people. Mark eleven twenty four. forgiving others the sins they've committed against you is a prerequisite for effective praying. You can't uh, thank God for his forgiveness, the penalty and the forgiveness that comes as he cleanses us in a paternal sense as our father as we live life and yet not forgive those who sinned against you. You want short circuit your prayers? Regard sin in your heart. Do not forgive those who have sinned against you. Another way our prayers are answered is John fifteen seven. Jesus said his words must abide in us. And we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. His words. And why does he say that? Because then his words control us. It's similar to delight yourself in the Lord. His word. Which will govern then what you ask for. Governs your thinking. Controls your mind. And your request will be in line with his desires. And then prayer will be answered. Now in verse 15. First uh, John 5. It says. And if we know that he hears us. In whatever we ask. Here's that word no. The word for certainty. That we will receive from him the things we ask. We meet the condition that's outlined in verse 14. We meet the conditions of other, that are spoken elsewhere in the New Testament. We know that we will receive the answer to our prayers. Now, we move to something that uh, can be very puzzling, especially related to prayer. Because we see in verse 16, it almost seems like, what in the world does verse 16 have to do with verse 15? In verse 14, well, it's talking about prayer. God will answer prayers according to his will. The A portion of verse 16 tells us this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life. Give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. See, this is what happens. This, this matter of the certainty um, of uh, prayer as it moves to the issue of intercession. Think about it. You see a Christian brother or sister committing a sin. Your first response is to be prayer. It is not to gossip. It is to pray. You intercede on their behalf if it's a sin not leading to death. You ask God to work in their life, turn them around. And the promise here is that he will. But see, there's a sin leading to death. 
that that sin is not disclosed, we don't know what it is. John's readers, they knew what it was, apparently, but it hasn't been disclosed to us. Well, how do we know? Any idea? Well, there are some probabilities, and I think if you've read the scripture, you probably can think of at least two. We'll consider the possibility of sin that leading, leading to death. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, you know the story. They sold some property because others like Barnabas and Acts 4 sold property and they were laying at the apostles' feet. And of course, uh, with that kind of generosity, doing that, selling the property and laying the money at the apostles' feet to meet the needs of uh, the other saints there in Jerusalem, uh, there's a certain amount of um, recognition and esteem that would be garnered by people who would do such a thing. Well, Ananias and Fire said, well, you know what? We got some property. Let's sell it. We're going to tell them, we're going to sell it and say we'll give it give it all to the Lord to the, so his people can, needs can be met. They lied. Ananias, he comes to church first. I guess she was home. Sapphira is still making bagels or something. I don't know. And Peter confronts him. Why have you lied to, the, to God, the Holy Spirit? And. He died on the spot. God put him to death. The Corinthian assembly, you recall, there are irregularities at the Lord's table. They were not honoring Christ as they should in relation to one another. The love feast was out of control and uh, they, the, the rich ones would come and they'd eat and the poorer saints didn't have any food. And so there was a profound lack of love there. That displeased the Lord. And Paul, uh, writing them, rebuked them for that. Some of them were sick, some of them were weakly, but others the Lord put to death. 1 Corinthians 11.30 Their deaths were an act of divine discipline. Those sins, the sins of Ananias and Sapphira and those of those number of people in the Corinthian assembly who were put to death, those were sins that led to death. Now, those were different issues, different concerns, but they died. They experienced a death penalty, physical death, not eternal death. So what this leads us to conclude is that there um, isn't a particular one sin that leads to death. In my mind, that says you, just, you don't know what that one is. The best thing, you just don't sin. <laughs> Stay away from sinning. But I'll tell you something else. Thank God for his mercy. <laughs> Isn't that good? Because all sin deserves death. All unrighteousness, verse 17, is sin. Unrighteousness means that which doesn't meet the standard of righteousness that is God's own character. Anything doesn't meet God's standard, which is his character and righteousness, is sin. His character is revealed in the law. 
the law he gives, the Ten Commandments, the moral standards. God is righteous. And notice it says, all unrighteousness is sin. All sin is serious to God. Never trivializes it. Because it's an affront to his holiness. Or an affront to his holiness. Think about the seriousness of sin this way. God, the son, came into this world and he bore the wrath of God and he died for the sins of all who would believe. That's how serious sin is, that the Son of God came and died for sins. Think of it this way. There's a place that will exist forever. There will be people in that place. And they will exist forever in that place. It's called the lake of fire, where they will pay for their sins forever. Whereas Mark 9, 48 says, their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. The worm apparently talking about their conscience. Their conscience will forever remind them of their rejection of Jesus Christ and their sin. And they will pay for their sin forever. That's how seriously God takes sin. Never trivialize it. Don't take it lightly. That's what Jesus said. If your right eye offends thee, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Deal radically with sin because sin is a serious issue. And we live in a world that does not take sin seriously. People say, oh, that's just a little picadillo. Oh, they can't help themselves. Oh, you're okay, I'm okay. We're not okay. Sin is a serious issue. As believers, we want to take it seriously. Well, how can we take it seriously as Christians? First of all, by confessing it. Secondly, forsaking it. Thirdly, putting it to death. Killing sin. You say, how do you kill sin? You kill sin by faithfully obeying scripture. Every time you have the option of obeying God or disobeying God, when you obey God, you just kill sin. You just put it to death. That's how you do it. Well, just to sum up. God will answer the prayer of the sin that's not leading to death. That's certain he will do that. Um, for those who sin leading to death, God won't. He, John doesn't recommend that you even pray about that. I hesitate to um, talk about things that um, maybe um, could be interpreted differently. But I'll tell you an instance in my own life when I, um, there was a co-worker and I talked to him. He was a professing Christian. He uh, worked in his church uh, and had a, re a reputation for that. But at work, he was anything other than what he was at church. One day in the locker room, I talked to him about it. He said, you need to quit living like this. It's not right. Well, he um, had an aneurysm. 
and it went to hospital. We were young, and he had, the, the aneurysm happened while he was at work, and uh, he was sick. And I was praying for him. I wanted him to recover. And as I prayed for him, there was a point in my time of praying for him. I, I just felt I need to stop because I felt he's not going to survive. It's a brain aneurysm. And he didn't. And I've wondered to this day if God didn't chasten him because his life at work was not the kind of life he should have been living as a Christian. But yet in his church, man, he was deeply involved. And I wonder to this day if God did not chasten him by putting him to death. So he takes sin seriously, people. Take it seriously. The certainty of eternal life, the certainty of answered prayer. Speaking of sin, the certainty of victory over sin. Look what John says in verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. John again states the truth that no one who has been born of God, the new birth, uh, sins. This is absolute language. I know you're thinking, how in the world can that be? Because I know I've been born again, but I sin. Well, you know, John doesn't mean that Christians do not ever sin. Because 1 John 1 and 1 John 2, we know that. But we can have the certainty that we will not uh, practice sins. That's what he is talking about. Sins in the present tense. It is not a lifestyle for us. It's not routine for us. It's not an ongoing fact of life. It's not habitual. The new birth so transforms us. It is a spiritual inflection point. At the moment we're born again, something happens to us. We're transformed. Our nature is transformed. And therefore, our life will not be one of routine, habitual sinfulness. Because we've been transformed. We've been changed. What, is, what happens then, is why he can say this, there's a pattern of righteousness which characterizes those born of God. Conversely, a pattern of unrighteousness characterizes those who are not born of God. We are distinguished from those who are not born again, from those who are. The distinction comes in how we live our life. And we live our life differently now because we've been transformed by the new birth. Now, what um, he continues to say here in verse 18. But you see it says after the semicolon, but he who was born of God, keeps him. Now, we need to explain that. You, I don't know if your Bible has it, the pronoun. The, the, the he, uh, the H, is capitalized, signifying deity, and it means Jesus Christ. He was born, born of God. Who keeps him. He is the one who keeps the one who is born of God. Talk about the saint. The one born of God, told me the only begotten Son of God, the only and unique one, Jesus Christ. He keeps him, the one who doesn't sin because he's born of God. 
He keeps us. He's the good shepherd, is he not? He protects his flock. Remember the high priestly prayer, Jesus committed his men over to the Father because he's going to the cross. Jesus had kept them. He protected them from the evil one. And he says, don't take them out of this world, but keep them from the evil one. He said, Father, since I'm going to go to the cross, I hand my men over to you to protect them from the evil one. And John, who wrote that, John 17, he writes this. And he says, and the evil one does not touch him. Lay hold of. Fasten his grip. The evil one cannot grip the redeemed soul. Satan will tempt us, does he not? He will oppose us. He will harass us. He will fire his missiles at us, fiery darts at us. He is always after us. He is seeking whom he may devour. That's what he does. But he can never reclaim us. We have been permanently rescued from his domain. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We will never be in his power again. He can never take us back to himself and lead us into sin. That cannot happen because our good shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, who's been brought again from the dead, he is the one who protects us. And I think he has the power to do that, don't you? He is able to do it. He is able to save us to the King James uttermost. So we're protected. We're kept. from the, That's a certainty. The certainty. There's another thing. Certainty of belonging to God. Verse 19. We know that we are of God. Let's stop there. We know. There's, see that word? Know again. The certainty. We belong to God. Let me tell you. The, the most fundamental division among human beings is spiritual. Either you're with God or you're not. That's the fundamental dividing point among human beings. Oh, yes, I know there are all kinds of other divisions that rack society and rack the world, all of that. But I'm going to tell you something. It all fundamentally comes out of our sinfulness, whether you're with God or not. It's the fundamental division. Raymond Brown writes that the words in our text, we are, implies not only origin, but a sense of belonging. And you think about this. There are individuals, there are cultures, there are nations. All of that belongs to the devil. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, right? Lies, that word means they offer no resistance. Nobody in the world is saying, devil, leave me alone. Devil, I don't want you messing with me. Devil, I don't want to follow your philosophy. Devil, no, no, they're not doing that. They're following it. Ephesians chapter 2. There is no middle ground. No third option. Either, as I said a moment ago, either we're in with God in his kingdom or in Satan's. They're the only two kingdoms operative in the world. Jesus clinches it. He says this in Luke eleven twenty three, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Clear enough? Amen. So we come now to this one. The final one for this 
message, the certainty that Christ is the true God. Notice the text. And we know that the Son of God has come. Son of God. Again, John reasserts the deity of Christ. That's why he calls him the Son of God. He has the same essence as the Father. Has come, asserts the historical appearance of the Son of God among men in the incarnation. Has come. That's what it means. He has come. Historically. God from all eternity, the second person, the Trinity, the eternal son of God came among men in human flesh. A miracle of miracles. And the original language has come really is a present tense and it's an abiding reality. He will be incarnated. He'll be the God man forever. You know why? For us. For us. And he has given us understanding. He has uh, given us significance as to who he is. We have an anointing also from him, from the spirit. Really? Remember that? Remember that? And notice in the middle of the verse, we know him who is true. He is true. The word true is used three times in this verse. <laughs> and we are in him who is true. We know him who is true, God the Father, and we are in him who is true, his son, Jesus Christ. We are united with him. And then this is the true God and eternal, God and eternal life. The antecedent to this is Jesus Christ. He's eternal life. The deity of Jesus Christ is an essential element of the Christian faith. Let me let you know that. Do understand that. No one who rejects the deity of Jesus Christ can be saved. John completes his letter with this warning. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Apparently John is using this, uh, saying this, he's warning against the perversion of the true identity of the incarnate Son of God. It's promoted by the Antichrist, those false teachers there in the Asian churches, Asia Minor. Just keep yourself from idols. Hold fast to the true God, Jesus Christ. Tell you something, that's applicable today in the 21st century as it was in the first. There have always been those who want to pervert who Jesus is. Say he's not who the Bible says he is. True Christians reject that out of hand. So we know who he is, don't we? He's the true God and eternal life. This is an uncertain world, isn't it? We don't, there's some things we just don't know for sure. We don't know what's going to happen next. Who among us saw, some did, saw this pandemic coming? A lot of things are uncertain in this world because it's a dark world, right? But we have certainties. 
And our certainties are found in the word of God. The word of God is our guide. Psalm 119, 105 says this familiar text. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In a dark world, we have light. For our walk, for our living, it's the word of God. We have certainties, don't we? We know some things for sure that are true. Absolutely certain. Because the word of God has communicated them to us. Let's bow together in prayer. We thank you, our God and Father, for uh, the, the certainties that you provide for us in your word from Genesis to Revelation. Thank you for this passage that underscores them and highlights some. May uh, uh, we take them deeply to heart and live out these truths. Uh, understand we have solid ground for confidence because your word has declared it. So we give you praise we give you glory for those realities. Thank you for our time together to hear your word, hear what you have to say. Help us to meditate on them, not forget them, find deep joy in them. We pray these things in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.